Open up to Daniel chapter 9. Four verses to finish the chapter. We're only going to get through the first two verses of that long four-verse prophecy. (laughs) So, But we're going to get to the best part, and then we'll save uh, verses 26 and 27 for next time. And they're exciting, too. All right, would you bow with me, and let's ask the Lord's blessing in our time together. Father, we come again before you with thankful hearts and with great anticipation of the things that you're going to reveal to us here this morning as we look at one of the very greatest prophecies, if not the greatest prophecies that you've ever given to mankind. I personally thank you, Lord, for refreshing my enthusiasm for your prophetic word as I studied for this lesson. It's so absolutely exhilarating to study your word and get a glimpse of your infinite mind and your incomprehensible truth. And Lord, I pray that you would now enable me to teach the amazing truths of this 70 weeks prophecy with the same enthusiasm with which the spirit, your spirit taught me. Clear our minds and and our hearts to hear and to learn and to to digest and, and then apply these few verses of the scripture because we truly understand, if we truly understand the impact of this prophecy We never, ever again need to experience any doubt over the one in whom we believe, our Lord Jesus. If we had no other prophecies regarding the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming, this one alone would be enough for us to stake our lives on, our eternal lives on. So teach us now, Father, for the glory of your Son, in whose name we ask. Amen. All right, the title for this lesson is a super powerful prophecy, part one. (laughs) We've had a super powerful prayer, and now we get into a super powerful prophecy. I'm going to read something, begin our lesson with something strange. You're going to think this is really strange, but this is a direct quote from the Talmud. Something in the Jewish Talmud, okay? Here we go. May the bones of the hands and the bones of the fingers decay and decompose of him who turns the pages of the book of Daniel to find out the time of Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And may his memory rot from off the face of the earth forever. End of quote. Pretty harsh, isn't it? That, those are the words, the actual words of an ancient rabbinic curse that, as I said, is found in the Talmud. And it's on me. And it's on you. It's on anyone who would read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, which is the great 70 weeks prophecy in order to figure out the time of the Messiah's coming. Hmm. Why do you think those rabbis put that curse on anyone who would read this passage? I'll tell you why. It's because this passage is the greatest proof in the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah and our Savior. And they rejected him. And they don't want their... That's why they pretty much prohibit the Jews from reading passages like Isaiah 53 as well. Sir Isaac Newton 
Remember him? (laughs) He said, we can stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone. Written some five centuries before Christ. Well, it's a very important prophecy. Very, very important prophecy to understand. So I hope that if you need coffee, get up and get some. Focus. Whatever you do today, try to focus so that you understand. Because understanding this prophecy is the foundation for all end times prophecy. And so many people have misunderstood it. They've listened to people who have taught it incorrectly. And it messes up their whole idea about Israel. And that can get into politics, too. um, Because there's a lot of people in Christendom who are taking the wrong side of the issue with regard to Israel. Thinking God is finished with Israel, so they're they're on the side of the Palestinians. You have to understand that God is not finished with Israel. He has not replaced Israel with the church, and Israel is still very important to him. And the curse of, I mean, I guess you could say, not not so much. Well, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, the Abrahamic covenant is still in it's still applicable to us. You know, I will bless those who bless her, Israel, and I will curse. There's the word curse. Those who curse her. So we need to understand this prophecy for a lot of reasons. It also, if you properly understand it, you'll get a proper understanding of when the rapture of the church is going to take place. Pre-tribulation, before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, uh, five-sixths of the way through the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. This this prophecy will set it straight for you if, you if you understand it. Okay? You with me? All right. Now, we ended our last lesson with the sudden appearance of the angel Gabriel with a message of the highest priority for God's greatly beloved Daniel. He was a man, of course, whose heart, even after some 67 or 68 years, living in a pagan, corrupt, very dark culture, His heart had never ceased to be an altar from which he lifted up his offerings of praise to his God. In fact, we found out how many times a day did he very faithfully pray. Three times a day. Well, in his chapter 9 prayer, his concern was for God's. It was all God-centered, wasn't it? His concern was for God's character to be glorified by his merciful restoration of of Israel, his people, the Jewish people, to their land. And the answer to his prayer contains far, far more than just the news. And he does receive the news that Israel will be restored to her land. But he gets a lot more than just finding out that she'll be restored physically. It contains, this answer contains a summary account of God's entire redemptive program for Israel. Now, we had God's overall panoramic program for the Gentile nations, didn't we? We had that in chapter 2 with the giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then we had it again in chapter 7 with Daniel's own dream vision about those four beasts. So we've seen what God has in plan for the Gentile nations all the way up to the second coming. And now here, squeezed into four verses, we have his overall redemptive plan for Israel. Israel, because she's the only nation that isn't Gentile. So we have the whole thing. We have everything we need. And we also have a a summary account of the church age in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, don't we? Well, so in these four verses, he, he gives the entire redemptive program for Israel from the time of her Babylonian exodus, you know, back to her land, 
all the way from that to the first coming of her Messiah, called in this this uh, prophecy Messiah the Prince. Um, so it goes from the Exodus of Tibet to the land to the first coming of the Messiah to his death. We are told, and this must have really shocked Daniel when he heard that the Messiah was going to be cut off. But if you look in verse 26, it says he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. Did he die for himself? No, he died for me and he died for you, right? He died for Israel. He died for the whole world. Uh, So it takes us to his death and then to another yet coming destruction of of Jerusalem. That must have been kind of heart-rendering for Daniel to hear because... You know, Jerusalem, from his perspective, is already destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and now he finds out it's going to be rebuilt in verse 25, and then he finds out down in uh, 26 that it's going to be destroyed again. Who destroyed Jerusalem the second time around? The Romans, the Romans in 70 AD. And then it jumps all the way. You know, there's a gap between the 69th week of this prophecy and the 70th week. It skips the whole church age which was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. It jumps all the way to the reign of the Antichrist. And it tells us about the beginning of that last seven years when he signs a covenant, a peace treaty with Israel. And then in the middle of that last seven years, he breaks that peace treaty. And then it tells us how he is, that he is destroyed at the end. And of course, he's destroyed at the end with the second coming of the Messiah. So that's a lot in four verses, isn't it? I mean, talk about how succinct the Holy Spirit can be. All that in four verses. But it's going to take me a whole lot more than that. I had 12,000 words just for this lesson that I had to squeeze down to 4,500. That was a chore. (laughs) Because when I talk to you, I add another 4,500, don't I? All right. Anyway. Uh, This prophecy is not only considered the greatest proof in the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah, but it is also one of the single greatest defenses of the divine authorship of, of the book, of the Bible, of Daniel and the whole Bible. I mean, there's no doubt when you understand this prophecy, you know God wrote this book. Definitely. Now, to rightly understand it does provide us with the necessary framework for everything that we need to to understand about what the scripture says about the future. If you understand this, then you're going to have a good grasp on what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, which is a jet tour through the book of Revelation. You're going to understand the book of Revelation a whole lot better if you understand these four verses. And think about this. If the Jewish people had rightly understood this prophecy, these four verses, they could have known exactly when to be on the lookout for their Messiah at his first coming. If they had properly understood this prophecy, they could have known even to the day of his official presentation of himself as her rightful king. And that we will get to this morning. And that is why the curse was written by those Jewish rabbis, so as to prevent Jews from coming to the conclusion that Jesus was and is their Messiah. Now, there have been Jewish people who have studied this prophecy despite the curse and have gotten gloriously saved. And maybe I'll share some of their testimonies with you next time if I have enough time. Otherwise, I'll try to put it in the email lessons. But one of them was the man who started... um, the Jews for Jesus ministry. It was called a different name. Do you remember? 
chosen something or other, but and now it's now it's the Jews for Jesus. Yeah, 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 that guy. He got saved reading and studying the great 70 weeks prophecy. Also, if this prophecy would be understood, and I think it will be by some, of the Jews who will be living during the time of the tribulation, the last seven-year period of this prophecy, if they will understand this prophecy, they will be able to identify who the Antichrist is. The one who signs the covenant (laughs) and the one who breaks it. And they will also be able to figure out to the day the second coming, or just about to the day, the second coming of their Messiah. So this is important. Did I stress that enough? (laughs) All right. Now, unique to uh, to this chapter, and I found this fascinating, but unique to this chapter in all of the book of Daniel, in all 12 chapters of Daniel, this is the only chapter that he uses God's covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. And he uses it seven times in this chapter. But never again did Daniel use that chapter, not before and not after did he use that name, I mean. So why do you think the Spirit inspired Daniel um, to do that? Well, because he was emphasizing that this chapter is proof that the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh, will indeed keep every promise that he made in the Abrahamic covenant, in the land covenant. I don't like to call it the Palestinian covenant because that gets people thinking of the Palestinians. I call it the land covenant. He will keep every promise he made in the Davidic covenant and every promise of the new covenant, which he gave to replace the Mosaic covenant. So that's interesting. The only chapter that uses that name, God's covenant-keeping name. Now, I've divided these four verses into two sections. We're going to be looking at the determined decree in verse 24 and then the distinct divisions of this um, prophecy in verses 25 to 27. Gabriel began his God-sent message telling Daniel that 70 weeks... And that word weeks is confusing because it makes you think of weeks, but I'll explain what the word really means. Um, Telling him that 70 weeks had been determined upon his people and his holy city to bring about the fulfillment of six objectives. And we'll be looking at those in verse 24, um, which are all, all six of those objectives are relative to Israel's ultimate (laughs) redemption. Her ultimate redemptive good. The first three have to do with her sin. Remember, 72% of his prayer had to do with confessing Israel's sin, her iniquities and her transgressions. So the first three deal with her sin, and the second three of these objectives that by the end of this 490-year uh, Um, prophecy, all these will be fulfilled. So the first three are dealing with her sin. He will deal with Israel's sin. And the second three have to do with righteousness. He will bring in an age of righteousness. Um, So he's basically saying that at the end of these 70 weeks that are determined for Daniel's people, Israel's national sins will be dealt with and her national salvation, you know, corporately as a nation, will occur. So let's look at the specifics of verse 24 and see what it reveals about the calendar, God's calendar for Israel. It's 
but we're going to spend a lot of time on the calendar. Then we're going to look quickly at the conversion for Israel and then the kingdom for Israel. So those three things, the calendar, her conversion, and her kingdom. So let me read verse 24. Look with me at verse 24. Gabriel, speaking to Daniel, says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, here are the six uh, infinitives, because they all start with two, but they're, they're goals. God is saying through Gabriel that when the 70 weeks are over, all these things will be fulfilled. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. All right. That sounds confusing, doesn't it? Hopefully, when you leave, you'll understand what it's all about. So Gabriel goes on to tell Daniel that um, this God-determined program for Israel was for the period of how long? Seventy weeks. Weeks, okay? Now, the meaning of the word, the Hebrew word for determined is cut out. Okay, God has cut out a specific period of time at the end of which he will have fulfilled his covenant promises to Israel, which include her spiritual salvation and the kingdom reign from Jerusalem of her Messiah. I'm going to keep repeating myself because that way you'll get it. Now, the meaning of the Hebrew word that is translated here in our English translations as weeks is very important for us to know. It is the word Shavuim, Shavuim, and it refers to a unit of sevens. In English, it's called a heptad. Heptad? We don't use that very often, do we? Uh, Never. Never. Yeah. If you have if if you have seven of something, you could really impress your friends by saying, "I have a heptad of that." But that's an actual English word. Um, it's, it's, we think more in terms of like a dozen, okay? You can have a dozen of something. You can have a dozen of anything. You can have a dozen people in your Bible study. You can have a dozen eggs. Of course, we always think of that. You can have a dozen friends. You can have a dozen hair bows, earrings. Yeah, I'm looking around. <laughs> what a dozen chairs. Um, a dozen of anything. You can have a shavuim of anything, too, because it's... Just saying you have seven of something, a shavuim of eggs. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the word. If you just take it by itself, 77s, and instead of weeks, think of 77s, because that's what it really means, 77s. Uh, taken by itself, then, it's ambiguous. Because, but in the context, and of course, everything in the Bible, you have to take in context, In the context, we do know that Gabriel is speaking of a period of time, don't we? I mean, that's obvious. In the context, he's speaking about a period of time. So it either refers to 77s of days, 77s of weeks, 77s of months, or 77s of years. If you get into centuries and millenniums, it just doesn't make any sense. So we know it's one of those first four. So to find out which unit of time this word is speaking of, we again look to the context because in the in Bible under, interpretation, you have to understand that context is the king. Context is the king of Bible interpretation. If you take a verse out of context, you can interpret it all kinds of strange ways, right? 
So context is the king. Now Daniel told us in the first few verses of this chapter that he had been studying. And what had he been studying? The scripture. And he had learned that Jer- about Jeremiah's very specific prophecy concerning the 70-year period of time that Israel would spend in captivity. And that is what led him to pray, right? The 77's prophecy was then given in response to that specific prayer. One in which Daniel had been thinking in terms of days, weeks, months, no, years. He'd been thinking in terms of years. By the way, there are no mentions in the Bible of sevens of weeks or sevens of months. So anyone who wants to take that interpretation for the word Shavuim, the burden of proof is on them. There are no other examples in the scripture. But there is an example of sevens of days. The weekly Sabbath was to be every seventh day. Why? Based on the creation week. God made everything in six days and rested on the seventh day. So the only other biblical term uh, or time period to uh, understand Shavuim would be days. Other than years, the only other one would be days. However, if you take that word to mean days, then it means 77s. What is 70 times 7? 490. Okay, 490 days from now we have to know when to start all this right we have to know when to start the calendar well gabriel gives us that in verse 25 if we go with that starting date which we'll talk about this morning and we count forward 490 days nothing in this prophecy is fulfilled within 40 490 days so it just doesn't work and if that's what gabriel meant then then he was either speaking for himself and he was not really then God's messenger, was he? Or if he was speaking of 77s of days and he was speaking for God, then God got it wrong. And guess what you can do? Get up, go home, throw away your Bible. Because if God got it wrong, there's no sense in us being here. So it really, it isn't days. <laughs> it is not days. The only time period for the word Shavuim is years. And as I mentioned, it does agree with Daniel's prayer regarding 70 years. And it agrees with the weeks of years with which Jews were familiar. Weren't they familiar with the Sabbath uh, law of the land? You know, that every seventh year they were to give the land rest? I mean, that's why they didn't obey that. That's why they're in captivity in the first place. And weren't they familiar with 77s? 70, whatever it is, you know, 49 years at seven sevens, seven sevens. And then the ne- next year they were to have the uh, Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. So they're, they're used to thinking in terms of sevens of years. Then also the Mishnah, which is the uh, rabbinic collection of uh, commentary on the, on the law, on the Torah. The Mishnah says that years are in view here in Daniel chapter 9. And the most important thing of all is that it works with history, with fulfilled history. It works perfectly with fulfilled history. So what I can conclude, I said all that just to tell you that the sevens are years, 77s. 
which makes this whole prophecy a total of how many years? 490 years, at the end of which all these promises will be fulfilled and they will be fulfilled to Israel. And I do need to mention that. Who was Gabriel talking to here? Who's Daniel? Okay, was Daniel Jewish or was Daniel Gentile? He was Jewish. So when he said that 77s were determined on Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city, you would think, you would think that it is so obvious that these fulfillment goals of this prophecy concern the Jewish people and literal Jerusalem that it's silly for me to even stand up here and reiterate that to you. Right? Gabriel's saying, this is for your people, Daniel, and your holy city. Duh! That means the Jewish people, Israel, Jerusalem. You'd think that's obvious, wouldn't you? But that is not the case. Oh, that is so far from reality. For, for one example, replacement theology. Have you heard of replacement theology? It is prevalent. It is in most of Christendom. It's, it's more prevalent than not. That's why I'm afraid so much of Christendom does not support Israel. They think that God is finished with Israel, and they've replaced Israel. That's why it's called replacement. They've replaced all God's promises to Israel and said, now they're for the church, not for Israel. He's, you know, Israel, they, killed their, they killed our Savior. He's finished with them. He divorced them. Uh, but so they claim that Gabriel's words to Daniel when he said, thy people, doesn't refer to literal Israel, to the physical Jewish people, but that it refers to spiritual Israel, which they claim is the church. Also, in taking away promised fulfillments from literal Israel, Israel they also need to get rid of literal Jerusalem. Gabriel said, thy people and thy holy city. So in getting rid of literal Jerusalem, they claim that Gabriel's words, thy city, refer to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the literal Jerusalem. Are you following me so far? I told you this. You have to think. Well, look ahead at verse 26 and notice that the city, the holy city, is going to be destroyed by the people of the prince that shall come. He's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. So I have one simple question, not being sarcastic here, <laughs> but I asked these replacement theologists, how is it that a people, an earthly people, are able to destroy the heavenly Jerusalem? I'm curious. How, how does that happen? I don't know. I'd like to hear their answers. But, you know, besides that really ridiculous interpretation, there are other very serious mistakes to replacing the promises and the prophecies for Israel to the church. This prophecy was God's answer to a specific prayer that petitioned Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, about the Jewish people and the literal city of Jerusalem, which had literally been destroyed in Judah, you know, the southern kingdom, by Nebuchadnezzar. That's the specific, what this answer was all about that, okay? It literally happened. Daniel was not praying about entities of which he knew absolutely nothing. 
Daniel was not praying about a spiritual Israel called the church, was he? No, I mean, he didn't even know anything about the church. He had no idea that there was going to be a, 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 a institution called the church made up of, of us. Also, if you will look over real quickly at Daniel ten fourteen, and then again at Daniel eleven fourteen, both happen to be in verse 14, but you'll see the exact same words where it says, thy people, thy people, just as it did here. Thy people. And in both of those cases, everyone acknowledges and understands that it's really talking about the physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac, the physical Jewish people. So why would you interpret in those two places, thy people, to be literal Israel, but in this prophecy saying thy people isn't literal Israel? That's inconsistent Bible interpretation. You see, at the heart of replacement theology, which is also called supersessionism, I don't know why, but that's the other name, Behind the, at the heart of this uh, very, I would say, anti-Semitic theology, behind it is the idea that God's promises to the Jews were contingent on their obedience Oh, boy, would we be in trouble, too, wouldn't we? So they, they say, well, that because Israel was not obedient to God, he divorced her, he cut her off, and now everything is, you know, with the church. Well, you know, there was the Mosaic Covenant, which was based on if they obeyed him, he would bless them. But if they disobeyed, did he say, I'll divorce you? No. He said, I'll have to chasten you. I'll have to take you out of the land. If you don't give the land the rest it needs, you know, I'll chase you. But he never said, I'll cut you off and replace you. So, so they, they have this idea that God's promises to the Jews were contingent on, contingent on their obedience rather than being eternal promises based on God's character. He is a covenant-keeping God. He doesn't break his promises, does he? To replacement theologians... Uh, who find it necessary, they absolutely have to do this. They have to allegorize or spiritualize so many, many passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where God clearly says over and over again that he has not forgotten his promises to Israel. I mean, the whole universe has to fall apart before he would ever forget or forsake his people. He says that over and over again. So they have to take all those passages and they have to spiritualize them or allegorize them. You know, say they're oh, just metaphorical. So again, I have a question. What kind of a God is the God of the Bible if he made numerous specific detailed promises to the Jewish people, but then deliberately broke them with the excuse of, oh, didn't you know? You know, fingers crossed. Didn't you know? I was just speaking allegorically. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be the God I know of the Bible. And consider this fact. This is something else I'll throw in you. The first 69 sevens of this prophecy, which would be the first 483 years of this prophecy, have already been fulfilled. They have. They've already been fulfilled to the very detail. And guess what? They were not fulfilled allegorically. They were fulfilled very specifically concerning physical, literal Israel. 
and Daniel's people, the Jews, and Daniel's holy city, Jerusalem. They weren't fulfilled concerning the church because when those first 483 years were fulfilled, the church wasn't even around yet. And they were not fulfilled concerning (laughs) the heavenly Jerusalem. It had to do with the literal Jerusalem over there in Israel. To this very day, what is today? March 7th, 2017. Neither the first three promises of verse 24 regarding Israel's spiritual conversion. Is Israel saved today? No. Like the Valley of Dry Bones, you know, she's bones and sinew and everything, but there's no living breath in her. She hasn't been born again yet. So the first three regarding her sin, they haven't been fulfilled. And the second three promises um, in verse 24 are, are not fulfilled because is the kingdom of God here on earth? Is Jesus reigning from Jerusalem? No, not yet. I wish he was, but we're not in the kingdom yet. Some people think we are. But the problem for those who claim that God is finished with Israel, the promise is, I mean, the problem is um, that there is yet a final 70th week hanging out there for Israel. Now, if the first 483 years were fulfilled literally, and they concerned Israel and Jerusalem and the Jewish people, don't you think it's consistent to say that that last seven-year period is going to also be fulfilled? Why would the first 483 be filled, uh, fulfilled uh, literally and then the last seven years be fulfilled allegorically? That, doesn't, that just doesn't work. You don't use inconsistent Bible interpretation. So they have a problem. The 70th seven of seven years duration has not been fulfilled because God's prophetic prophetic calendar can't speak for Israel. The 490 years stopped ticking. That calendar stopped t- ticking when the Messiah presented himself officially to Israel as her king, as her long-awaited Messiah, just on the very day that this prophecy said he would, and her religious rulers rejected him. That's the ticking stopped. So there's yet one more seven-year period of this prophecy to be fulfilled. But in their attempt to dismiss a yet unfulfilled future for Israel, these theologians have decided that that final seven-year period of this prophecy was fulfilled in the Lord's Passion Week from Sunday, Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. They say that's the last seven years of this prophecy. (laughs) Now, some, and if you really want to get confused, you start typing in, Googling, Uh, 70 years prophecy, you will not believe all the things that are said about this prophecy out there. You really have to have discernment to, to, to figure it all out. But some of them actually say that the 70 weeks went all the way up to 70 AD when Rome came and destroyed the temple. And then the Jews were scattered. Okay, so are you following me? Some say the last week of this, the last seven years, is the Passion Week. Some say it goes, oh, no, all the way to 70 A.D. Others even say that it's, we're in it, that we're, the whole past 2,000 years, the church age, is the last seven years. All right, now, is there a problem with that? Well, let's me, let me begin with just one. 
Okay, one problem with that would mean, be, mean that Jesus, um, and not a yet coming Antichrist, but Jesus himself was the one who signed a covenant promise with Israel, a peace treaty with Israel, and then broke it in the middle of that Passion Week and caused the temple sacrifices to cease. This was Jesus, not the Antichrist, this, you know, if it's a Passion Week. And, and some of these guys actually say that, yes, Jesus did cause the temple sacrifices to cease because when he died, once for all, there was no more need for temple sacrifices, right? But that didn't literally happen, did it? The temple sacrifices actually went all the way to 70 AD until they didn't have a temple anymore. Jesus was long in heaven by that time. Um, they also say that... Uh, uh, it was Jesus who set up the abomination of desolation in the temple. Then, too, and you've probably figured this out, they are forced to use inconsistent Bible interpretation because they have to agree that the first 69 sevens of this prophecy were literally fulfilled in weeks of years. No doubt about that. It was the, the word Shavuim meant years. But all of a sudden, they have to switch gears and say that the last seven years of this prophecy are now days. Because the, seven, the, the, the Passion Week is what? Days. Yeah, one week. So, the, oh yeah, it meant years in the first part, but the last part is days. And then if you go to 70 AD, you have to make it whatever you make it. You make it about 40 years. And if you say it's the whole church age, you have to say, well, that last week was like some 2,000 years. You just, can't, you just can't have it all, can you? That's not how you'd interpret the Bible. The fact is, I said all that to say this. The fact is, God is not finished with Israel. Period. He is not finished with Israel. There is one more seven-year period of time before he can fulfill all these promises that he made to her. And that seven-year period is commonly referred to us as the tribulation. Jesus called the last three and a half years of it the great tribulation. We call the whole seven years the tribulation. But you know what the Bible calls it, what the Old Testament calls it in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7? The time of Jacob's trouble. Hmm. Why didn't they call it the time of the church's trouble? No, the time of Jacob's trouble. The Jacob, remember, had his name changed to Israel. So that's pretty clear. Scripture is very, very clear. You know, if you just, it's so simple. When you read all these websites where they have all these different ideas and they interpret, it gets so confusing. Your mind just gets muddled up because error is confusing. Truth is simple. When, it, when you just take it literally, it makes sense. And I choose to take the Bible literally, except when it's so obviously symbolic that you know. But, you know, take it literally. Scripture says this. God says he will never, ever abandon or forsake his people. Here's just one example. 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. God is a God who, who made his people promises to which he is bound. His word is at stake, right, ladies? His word is at stake. And he even places his word above his name. But speaking of his name, his name is at stake. His character is, is at, at stake. 
Now, how assuring would it be for you and I, as members of his church, Christ's church here on earth, to know that God did not keep his promises to Israel? How assuring would that be for us? Um, How assuring would it be for us to one day find out that all the promises he made to the church were merely allegorical? I didn't really mean for you to take them literally. It's just, I'm just speaking spiritually. And um, these, are, these, these promises were really intended for an unyet-revealed mystery entity of people. I didn't mean them for you. I meant them for the Martians. <laughs> I mean, I think of Daniel. That's exactly how it would be to him. Oh, these aren't for Israel. These are for the church. The church. You know, to him, it's like the Martians. Who in the world is the church? You get it? How, would that be comforting for you and I? Absolutely not. It is true, of course, that he is, God is now primarily working in and through the church. Yes, but once the church is removed, you know, the church was born suddenly, wasn't it? Boom. <laughs> Day of Pentecost. It was born suddenly, and it's going to be removed just as suddenly. Even faster. Twinkling of an eye. Blinking of an eye. Not even a blinking, a twinkling. And we're going to be out of here. And when the church is removed, he will again be directly working with who? Israel. Israel. And that is, I mean, was the church around in the first 483 years of this prophecy? No. So why would God be inconsistent and have the church around in the last seven years of this prophecy? He wouldn't. He wouldn't. And that, ladies, is a very strong reason for supporting a pre-tribulation rapture. The church is removed before he starts working that last seven-year period with Israel, exclusively with Israel. Are you following me? Okay, good, good. You know, one of the greatest miracles of history is that the Jewish people, that we have two Jewish ladies here among us, that the Jewish people have survived the great melting pot of the centuries. That is a miracle. It's a miracle that Israel's in the land, too. Only divine intervention could have prevented them from being lost in the great jungle of humanity, especially because they were dispersed across the whole face of this globe, right? Why were they not absorbed into the cultures and into the genetic genes of the people with whom they lived for centuries and centuries? They've been exposed to influences and to persecutions throughout their history, haven't they? And yet they have not been amalgamated, they have not been assimilated, they have not been exterminated, as has been Satan's, you know, purpose and goal. And, and they're even still, people are trying to do that with the Jews. It's increasing in this country, isn't it? Anti-Semitism, for some strange reason. And some of it maybe has to do with replacement theology. But um, they, they have survived all this. I mean, all of the ancient tribes and peoples that lived alongside of ancient Israel, do you, do you run into many Hittites or Amorites or Amalekites or Jebusites or Parasites? Yes. <laughs> they, they, they got assimilated, didn't they? They're not around anymore, but the Jewish people are. It's just, it is a miracle. <clears throat> Why are they still here as a distinct people? And now even back in their land. Why? 
Well, there's one very important reason. It's because God has preserved, he has preserved that entire people for one more seven-year period of history. He has one more week left on his divine calendar for her, at the end of which the six promises of Daniel 9.24 will be fulfilled, her sins will be taken care of, and her kingdom will be here. Now, the good news is that we got to share in her Messiah, her Savior, and we, you know, through Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed, and we get to share in her kingdom too, don't we? That's the good news for us. So the great 70 weeks prophecy anticipates the complete work of the Messiah. He will redeem Daniel's people and he will reign from Daniel's city at the end of those 490 years. Now that's the calendar for Israel. Now let's look at the conversion of Israel. I'm going to go through this really quickly. If you can't follow me, just get the no, you know read the notes carefully. But the first three uh, redemptive objectives concern the national conversion of Israel, and they deal with finishing her transgression, making an end of her sins, and making a reconciliation for iniquity. So let's begin with the first one, which is to finish the transgression. First question we need to ask is, what is the transgression that will be brought to an end when the 490 years of this prophecy are over? It has to be a special sin because it has that definite article, the, in front of it. The transgression of Israel. What was it? What was the transgression of Israel? Hmm? Right, rejection of Christ when she read. Now, Daniel wouldn't know that at this point because this is before. He would be shocked to know that his own people rejected their Messiah. He, he must be wondering why the Messiah is going to be cut off when he gets that news, but he, he would be shocked to know she would reject uh, her own Messiah. But that is, the, that is the transgression, the transgression of Israel, that when you know, she rejected the prophets, but then when God even sent his son, she rejected and crucified, had him crucified. Has that transgression yet been dealt with to this day? No, it hasn't. Israel, as a nation, still corporately rejects Jesus Christ. So when will that transgression be finished? At the end of the tribulation, after the 490 years of this prophecy are over, and Jesus returns second coming, it says in Zechariah 12:9 that finally Israel, what's left of her, will look upon him whom she pierced and mourn for him, as an only son, she will know, she will repent. And as it says in Romans eleven twenty six, which is in the New Testament, all Israel shall be saved. Now, replacement theologians, what do you do with that verse? You say all the church will be saved? Well, that's kind of dumb. Of course the church is saved. You don't become a member of Christ's body, his church, unless you are saved. So that would be... A redundant statement. All Israel shall be saved. And that verse goes on and says that ungodliness will be turned away from Jacob. You know, Paul wanted to make it really clear that Israel, Jacob, will be saved. Okay? So, the transgression will be finished. And then he goes on and says to make an end of sins. When the 490 years are over, God will put the sins of Israel out of his sight as he has done with us, right? As far as the east is from the 
southwest and the bottom of the deep blue sea. That's where my sins are. Yay, and that's where I want to keep them. (laughs) How can he do that? How will he be able to put Israel's sins from her? Remember, Daniel was so worried about Israel's sins, and he confessed them over and over. God's saying, I'm going to deal with them. How would he be able to deal with them? Well, he'll be able to do it because Christ died for her. On the cross, he died for everyone. And when the Jewish people of Israel finally believe on him, then his atonement work for her will be applied to her. And she will be saved. Then it says to make reconciliation for iniquity. The Hebrew word there for reconciliation is kafur. K-A-P-H-A-R. I mean kafar. It has the same root meaning of the Hebrew word kippur. As in yam kippur, which is what? The day of day of atonement so kafar when it says make reconciliation is is uh literally to make atonement there will be atonement for the iniquity of israel it's actually because of this atonement where was the atonement made again on the cross is because of that atonement that those first two infinitives will be accomplished you know to finish the transgression make an end of sin and israel when she believes on her messiah She will finally, she will finally be reconciled to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Guess what? Israel will finally believe in the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. She'll be reconciled to her God. All right, that's the first three infinitives. And an infinitive, English majors, is when you put a two in front of something, like to make, to finish. Okay, so now the second three promised objectives concern the coming messianic kingdom christ will establish that kingdom where right here thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven he's going to establish his kingdom on earth at his return after the last seven of the 490 years of this prophecy he will reign over the entire world as king of kings and lord of lords from his throne in jerusalem and at that time Yea, he will bring in everlasting righteousness. And he will seal up the vision and prophecy, and he will anoint the most holy. So let's look at those. What does it mean to bring in everlasting righteousness? Well, the Hebrew word for righteousness is olam, O-L-A-M, and it refers to an age. So this is speaking of an age of righteousness. He's going to bring in an age of righteousness. Christ's kingdom on earth is going to be how long? How long is it going to last? A thousand years. It tells us that in Revelation six times. So I want to make clear, we knew a thousand years. God says it once, twice, three, four, five, six times. A thousand years. That's why it's also called the millennial kingdom. And, um, and, and he's going to set that right up here on earth. It's going to be an age of righteousness for a thousand years. And then after that, we're going to go into an eternal age of righteousness in the eternal state right right righteousness right (laughs) now people cannot make themselves righteous a lot of people try you know with their own works they try to make themselves righteous we cannot make ourselves righteous remember what daniel said in his prayer to god he said righteousness belongs to thee O lord neither can people ever establish a literal kingdom of righteousness here on earth now some people do think that the church is going to bring about the kingdom. That the church is going to bring about the age of righteousness. The church is just going to get things better and better and better and better until finally it's so good down here that Christ can come and reign. Now, how are we doing? (laughs) 
Not too good. No, not too good. That's, yeah, we better really get busy. And the reason for that is because we can't, we can't make ourselves righteous. So we can't make this world righteous. Both of these are God's doing. Interestingly, Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom is going to be called the city of righteousness. Why? Because, because the righteous branch of David will be ruling from there. And he will, and that's another name for Christ, and he will execute justice and peace and righteousness here on earth. And all God's people said, can hardly wait, right? (laughs) Be nice. It would be nice. All right, now here's one. It says, to seal up the vision and prophecy. Uh, That seems strange to us. Um, Because in the church age, we think, well, the visions and prophecy are, are already sealed up. We got the whole thing, right? Right here. All 66 books of the Bible. It's sealed up. Don't add any more, God says at the end. Well, that's true for the church age. But the last seven years, who is he going to be working with again? Israel. Okay. Um, you ever hear these two guys called the two mighty witnesses <laughs> in Revelation chapter 11? They're going to be some strange dudes because they're going to be able to be like a dragon consume people with fire from their mouth they're going to make be able to make it stop raining and start raining and they're going to prophesy and they're going to be prophets to israel not to us to israel but then at the end of the seven years the last four 490 years of this whole prophecy all prophetic ministries will be completely over at the time of the lord's return there will be no more need for visions and for prophecies and signs and wonders. Who are the ones that always wanted the signs? Yeah, Israel. No matter how many he gave them, they always wanted more. All right, to anoint the most holy, that speaks of the holy temple in the millennial kingdom. It will be built, um, and Ezekiel spends a lot of time talking about the millennial temple. Ezekiel chapter 40 all the way to chapter 48 is all about the millennial temple. In a way, um, God was answering Daniel's petition. Remember in his prayer, he prayed that God, for his own sake, would let his face shine on his sanctuary, his desolated sanctuary. Well, when the Messiah returns at the end of these 490 years, the face of God is definitely going to be shining from that temple, that sanctuary, that millennial temple. Not only will God's face be shining on that temple, God's face will be shining from that temple, won't it? Because who will be sitting there? Jesus himself will be. You know, in the Old Testament days, God represented his presence with his people uh, by his Shekinah glory. But in the kingdom, he's going to be there himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it will be anointed, definitely. The most holy place will be anointed by the anointed one, Christ. So that's real quickly um, those six promises to Israel that God has yet to fulfill but will be fulfilled at the end of the 70 weeks prophecy of 490 years. You still with me? All right, we got through all that. Now let's go to the distinctive divisions. And I'm going to read verses 25 to 27, but we're only going to get as far as verse 25 today. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment. Okay, here's where we start the clock. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto 
The Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks, or seven sevens, and threescore and two sevens. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Oh, boy. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he, that's the, the prince that shall come, shall confirm the covenant with many. And that's a different prince from Messiah the prince. You notice it's a small p, I hope, in your Bible. He'll confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate. That's what's called the abomination of desolation set up by the Antichrist, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate or the desolator. That's the end of the Antichrist, but we'll get all to that next time. The 490-year program for God was cut out of time to accomplish all his purposes and fulfill all his promises to Israel. And it was presented to Daniel in three distinct divisions. There's a seven weeks division, which is 49 years, because seven times seven is 49. Then there's a 62 week division, which is 434, <laughs> right? 434 years, I think. Um, and then there's a final week, which is seven years. That's the year, you know, the, the tribulation. But before we discuss those, we need to be, understand, when did God begin to tick off this calendar? When was the beginning? You have to know that, don't you? You have to know when is the beginning. When does this stop, clock stop, uh, start ticking? And Gabriel very wonderfully gave us that information. He gave it to Daniel. Uh, he said it would begin when a decree was issued to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay? Now, Daniel didn't ask this question because he didn't know there would be more than one decree issued about rebuilding Jerusalem or about Jerusalem. But from hindsight, we know there were four such decrees that involved the exodus of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. So which one was it? (laughs) Very good. There were four. The first one was by Cyrus. And he actually signed the decree that they could go back. Um, But basically, he talked about rebuilding the temple and the city. Gabriel said nothing about the temple, did he? And we want to be literal. We want to be specific. And that one would not work. That was around 538 B.C. Um, Then there was another one that was written by Darius Hystaspes, or Hystaspes, something like that in 521 B.C., but it was a reaffirmation of Cyrus's decree, and just trust me, that one doesn't work either um, because it's not about rebuilding the city. Another decree was issued by King Artaxerxes I of Persia to Ezra in 458, but that cannot work either because it was basically about safeguarding Judaism and not about rebuilding Jerusalem. So none of those first three qualify. If you go literally by what Gabriel said, they don't qualify. But there was yet a fourth decree, and as Ramona said, it was made to Nehemiah, Artaxerxes' cupbearer. In other words, if anybody was going to poison the king, who would die first? (laughs) Nehemiah. Um, And remember, he had a long face because he was so sad he just got news 
from Jerusalem that the city still wasn't rebuilt and it was just they were having a terrible time. And the king noticed, the Persian king noticed his long face and gave him permission to tell him why. Nehemiah said, oh, I'm just upset because my city isn't rebuilt. And then he had the nerve and the boldness to ask the king to give him permission if he could go back for a while and help them rebuild the city. And the king graciously, wondrously, I wonder why, (laughs) gave him permission to do so. And that was the decree. Now, conveniently, the Holy Spirit inspired Nehemiah to tell us the date of that decree. Nehemiah 2.1 says that it was the month of Nisan, and it was the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. Now, it was a Jewish custom, and I don't know why, but um, if, if, it was, if it just said the month and not the day, I mean, a lot of times in the Old Testament we'll read it was the 14th of Nisan or it was this date of Nisan or this of Tishri or whatever the date was. But when there is no day mentioned, the Jews said it was because it was the first day of the month. Okay, so then we know it was Nisan 1. And we also know the year because we know it was the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes and we know when he came to power. So we know the year was 445 B.C. The first of Nisan, four four five BC, and you can compute. You know, changing from the Hebrew calendar and the lunar to the solar, and our calendar, the Julian calendar. You can compute all, compute all that stuff. So on our calendar, it's March fourteenth, four forty five BC. That's when this tick 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 began. Okay, and he says that you know from that issuing of that decree unto Messiah the Prince would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right? Uh, But let me just go back to the first division, which is the seven weeks. They're not separated from the 62 weeks. The 62 follow right smack dab with the seven. So what is seven and 62? 69. So basically, it's from the issuing of the decree... 69 weeks with no gap will bring Messiah the prince. But everything in the scripture has a reason. So why did he separate the first seven sevens from the 62? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. History has shown us why. Seven times seven is 49 years. You know, it took them only 52 days to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, but it took them 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. And that's what he said, you know, to rebuild the street and the wall, etc. And to do so in troublesome times. Did they have some trouble rebuilding? Have you read the book of Nehemiah? And I mean, they had enemies inside and they had enemies outside. So it was definitely troublesome times. And that's the reason for separating that first seven years, which is actually 49 years. But then the second division is 62 weeks But as I said, it immediately follows the seven weeks. So it's a total of 69 sevens of years. What does that compute to? How many years? Four, I'll tell you, 483 years. From the issuing of this decree on March 14th, 445 B.C., 480 years later would be Messiah the Prince. Now, to do the calculation correctly you have to um, remember that the Jews operated on a 360-day year, not like we do, which is 365 and et cetera. You have to add for leap year. 
and I read all these websites and stuff that just, oh, I went crazy with all this stuff. But they said, the Bible is not scientific because if it was, they would know that there's not 360 days in a year. You know, you got to account for the axis and the leap years and all that kind of stuff. Um, but here's a thought, and I read this in several of them, and I thought, aha, before the fall, you know, God had a perfect 360-day year. Perfect. The fall caused the tip. <laughs> and now it's off. I mean, it's just off. God works in integers. He doesn't work in fractions. So that made sense to me. Anyway, if you, ta- if you take 483 years and times it by 360 days... And then you have to remember that from the year 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., there is no year zero. How would you like to have been born in the year zero? There is, there is no year zero. And, and you've got you to gotta calculate all that. But when you multiply that out, it comes to 173,880 days. Okay? Now, you start at Nisan 1, 445 B.C., and you count forward 173,880 days, and you land on Sunday, Nisan the 10th, 32 A.D. Hmm, Sunday the 10th of Nisan, 32 A.D., which computes to April 6th. 32 A.D. Interesting that it was the 10th of Nisan on a Sunday. How many of you were with me when I went into great detail about how I believe Jesus was crucified on a Thursday? Because that's the only way you can take it literally that he was in the earth three days and three nights. It had to be a Thursday. Well, if Nisan the 10th was a Sunday, and you know where I'm talking about, Palm Sunday, that means that that was the 10th, Monday was the 11th, Tuesday was the 12th, Wednesday was the 13th, and Thursday was the 14th. What's so important about the 14th of Nisan? That's when they were told back in Exodus to slaughter the Passover lambs on the 14th of Nisan. So that's one more evidence for a Thursday crucifixion. You know, for three and a half years, I'm almost through, just hang in there. For three and a half years of his ministry, the Lord Jesus did not make any claim to kingship. Actually, in chapter 6 of John, when the people wanted to make him king, they were going to force him and put a crown on his head, he refused. And he, and he left and went around the Sea of Galilee to get away from them. For one thing, he knew he had to do the cross before the crown, right? The other thing was that he knew they were going to give him a crown for the wrong reason. They wanted a king who would overthrow Rome. And so he refused the kingship. However, the time did come when he made his official presentation as the rightful king of the Jews. And he did so arriving in Jerusalem just as Zechariah had predicted the rightful Messiah, king of Israel, would do. Riding on what, Betty Joe? <laughs> the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. 9. And the multitudes, you see, on that Palm Sunday recognized what he was doing. And therefore they hailed him with their palm branches and their hosannas to the king of David, didn't they? But when the religious rulers saw all that going on, they told him, silence them, immediately silence them. 
You're not the king. They're committing blasphemy. And how did Jesus answer them? He said, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen that? Stones going, Hosanna to the king. Of, and could he have done it? Oh, sure. Yeah. He said, you know, this is, this is the day, you guys. So one way or another, somebody's going to proclaim it. If the Jewish students of prophecy had been diligent to study their, their scriptures, and especially this passage right there, they would have been on the alert even that very day. They would have been on the alert looking for their Messiah's arrival. And they could have known without a shadow of a doubt, with absolute certainty, that Jesus was, was he, him, whatever it's right, you know, that Jesus was their Messiah. But instead, a few days later, what did they do? They, what were they crying out? Crucify him, crucify And Jesus knew that, being omniscient, he knew. Yeah, they're hailing me now, but in four days, they're going to be crucifying me. And this is why. Remember, he stopped. He was in Bethany that night. And then they went, he and his disciples went to Bethpage where he got that donkey. And then they're at the top of the Mount of Olives. And from there, he can see a panorama view of the city of Jerusalem. And he's up there and he's looking down on Jerusalem and he's, he's weeping. Jesus wept. And he's weeping over the city. And here are his words. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least on this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. And then he went on to prophetically warn Jerusalem that it was going to suffer great, great disasters. And he said this, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You see, he was indicating that the specific day of his public entrance into Jerusalem, as Zechariah said, on that foal of a donkey, had been marked out by God as the time of her visitation by her true Messiah, the Prince. If they had known and calculated Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, they would have known right to that very day. That Jesus was their Messiah. Do you think there were some among them who had figured that out? Do you? I do. I can't be dogmatic, but I think some of those Pharisees and some of those scribes who were students of the word figured it out and knew it, but they kept it from the people, which is a whole, that's the transgression. You know, that prophecy was given over half a millennium before it saw the fulfillment of the Messiah's arrival. The probability that Daniel, some 500 years before, could guess the date of that arrival, what do you think the probability of that is? Talk about zero several times. <laughs> Big, fat zero. Here's the, here's the kicker. Even a forgery Daniel... In the second century B.C. couldn't have figured out that date. So even when they try to say that Daniel wasn't written by the real Daniel, those higher critics still have a problem. And what is the problem? God can foresee the future and tell to the very day. I mean, and who, who, ask the Jewish people you know. Ask them. We know from this prophecy 
that this means that her Messiah had to come after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and that was back in uh, Nehemiah's time, and yet before Jerusalem and the temple were again destroyed in 70 AD. So somewhere between 400 BC and 70 AD, her Messiah was there. So let's go back and look through that time period and see who would qualify. If they reject Jesus, who else? Who else could it be? Who else came from the right lineage? Who else was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata? Uh, you know, all the think of all the prophecies. Who who fulfilled this prophecy and who fulfilled that prophecy? And and, and then who arrived on the very 173rd, 880th day, officially presenting himself as the king? Who? Ask them. Who? And there's only one answer, right? It has to be Jesus. That's why the curse by the rabbis on anyone who would read this prophecy and figure it all out. Get it? Anyway, we know and we're accountable to share with others. And especially if you know any Jewish friends, please share it with them. Because if they have their eyes open to this in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, you can't help but see it's true. Right? All right. Thank you. I know I kept you over. Lord, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for how specific and precise it is and how clear and accurate and how definitely you are the divine author of this book and we can stake our lives and our eternal lives on it. Thank you for that. And may we take this this news, this truth that we have learned and share it with others, share it with our children, share it with our husbands, share it with our friends, share it with our Sunday school classes, share it with anybody who doesn't know And, Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem because we know that in doing so, that means come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you, and uh, we just ask that every woman would be light and salt until we meet again. For we pray in his name. Amen. Bless you.